I always look at the title of that last song and smile. It says, take my life and let it be. I think a lot of people <laughs> would like for it to just stop right there. Are you aware that the Quakers don't do much singing, or at least historically they did not? And part of it was that they had this idea of a silent service. But uh, some of it was they said people lie when they sing. And they didn't want to encourage lying. So they just decided not to do a lot of singing uh, so the people wouldn't be saying things they didn't mean. We, we sing things like this. Uh, Dead to the world would I be, O Father, dead unto sin, alive unto thee. Uh, I will go with thee all the way. All of thy bidding will obey. We sing this amazing, these amazing prayers. And uh, part of the problem, of course, is we're not thinking about what we're singing. But we're singing those songs and we're saying those things. So, let's sing, O Lord, within my soul. O Lord, within my soul, I long for purity. To be complete and whole alone through thee. There is no other hope, there is no other plea. Salvation, full salvation, free must come alone through thee. I bend before thy cross. And know my heart can be cleansed from its sin and dross alone through thee. There is no other hope, there is no other plea. Salvation, full salvation, free must come alone through thee. All right, let's quote. Chapter 5 of Matthew 1 through 7. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into the mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Uh, uh, Well, we could keep on going, but we will tomorrow morning. Let's uh, finish through verse 10 tomorrow morning. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you this morning that you not only gave us lofty ideals, but you gave us all the resources of heaven to fulfill those ideals. We thank you for that grace. And we pray, Lord, today that we might earnestly consider and covenant in our hearts to get ourselves out of the way, to put self on the cross, so that your grace may have its free expression in our lives. Help us in a small way this morning to understand a little bit more what that means In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at verses 38 to 42. In the late 1700s and early 1800s, you had the Methodist circuit-riding preachers, and one of those was Jesse Lee. The story I'm going to tell you was told many years later to one of Lee's nephews because he heard an old man in a store that had... Uh, name that he recognized. 
And this old man told this story about his own experience. He said, as a youth, I went to hear Jesse Lee preach. The church was full, and I had to sit right outside the back door. And because uh, I was not able to hear very well, I, I and my friends started to make a little bit of noise outside the church there. And Jesse Lee very kindly uh, called us down and asked us to please be attentive to the sermon. But I felt terribly embarrassed. I felt my family was disgraced because he called out my behavior. And I determined I was going to whip Jesse Lee before he left that night. But somehow he managed to leave, and that didn't happen. The years went by, and I forgot the incident. And then one day I was in a store uh, in Petersburg buying something, and when I got on my horse to go home, I saw a cart ahead of me, and I thought that looked like Jesse Lee. Oh, well, you know, that's in the past. But then he said, something in me said coward, and all the hatred returned. And so he said, I caught up with Jesse Lee, pulled up beside his cart, and said, are you Jesse Lee? He said, yes. Do you remember? And he described the incident. Yes, Jesse Lee says, I remember. He said, well, that night, I was determined I was going to whip you before you went home. And I didn't get that done that night, but I'm going to do it now. And Jesse Lee said, well, I'm an old man, and if 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 I decided to fight with you, you would win. And besides, he said, I'm a man of God, and the Bible says a man of God is not supposed to strive. So I said, if you'll just give me time to get down off of this cart, you can whip me in the middle of the road as long as you want to. And so he did that. And this man said, I never in my life experienced such horror and such terror and such awful revulsion for myself as I felt that night, that day. And he said, I got on my horse and I rode away from that scene as fast as I could go. Now, this can hardly be called non-resistance. I consider what you just heard resistance of the highest order. I do not like the term non-resistance. I know Jesus said we're not to resist evil, but I don't like that term because I think most people sort of read a passivity into it. And I think Christians are called to give a very active response to evil. We are to resist evil. We're to resist the devil. And... uh, We're supposed to be witnesses against evil. And so the idea of not resisting has never appealed to me. So I have titled this message, The Ideal Resistance. The Ideal Resistance. And I would like to talk about three points. People say, my wife says, unless I put my outline on the board, uh, people don't get it. So I'll give it to you before I start. The Ideal Anticipated... That's verse 38. The ideal asserted, verses 39A, A, and the ideal applied, verses 39B to 42. The ideal anticipated, the ideal asserted, and the ideal applied. So let's talk about the ideal anticipated. We all intuitively know that something must be done about evil. It cannot be allowed to run rampant like it did before the flood. It must be stopped. It cannot have full reign. Before the flood, it said the whole world was filled with evil. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. The earth also was corrupt before God. And the earth was filled with violence. For all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. 
That can't happen again. Uh, in fact, when it does happen again, there will be the end of time. And so we all intuitively know something must be done to stop evil. Well, after the flood, God said, okay, whoever sheddeth man's blood by, that, by, that, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. So he set up civil government to punish evildoers. And if somebody took somebody's life, God said his life was to be taken. Whosoever sheddeth man's blood by his blood, by man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. So, <clears throat> at first, though, there tended to be unlimited revenge. There are three basic, four basic ways to deal with evil. The first one is unlimited revenge. Lamech said, I've killed a youth who attacked and wounded me. And if someone for Cain will be punished seven times, then anyone taking revenge against me shall be punished 77 times. And so this idea is to actually uh, give back more than you received. You remember the story of Simeon and Levi who destroyed a whole village of people. Uh, that's unlimited revenge. Okay, that's the law of the jungle that might makes right. Peace with strength. Inflict more injury than you have received. The result would be mutual self-destruction. In fact, I saw a bumper sticker one time that says an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. So a better way was revealed in the Old Testament. It involved two things. One was limited revenge. And there were two principles involved here. The one was that you did not exact any more punishment than what you had received. So it was an eye for an eye. Not ten eyes for one eye, but one eye for one eye. The second thing that we often overlook, it was, it was the, the uh, uh, revenge <clears throat> or the punishment was taken out of the hands of the person who had actually suffered the injury and was placed in the hands of judges. You can see all of this <clears throat> in Leviticus 19, 17 to 18. It says it, uh, it, what, what gets done will be as the judges determine. So the person who was injured was not just venting his anger. It was put in the hands of judges. They carefully looked at it. And they were supposed to execute an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is limited revenge, not unlimited revenge. Okay? And then the next part of this was limited love. And I want you to turn to a couple passages. Everybody likes to look at Leviticus 19, verses 17 to 18, and they say, Oh, in the Old Testament, we have non-resistance. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, I want you to turn to that passage, Leviticus 19. There's a little something here that gets overlooked. <clears throat> We're starting in verse 17. Thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. Thou shalt, not, thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge, now here's the phrase you need to notice, against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbors thyself. So here he's saying, you're to love your neighbors yourself, but it includes only your Israelite brother. Moab, Ammon are not to be forgiven and brought into the congregation forever. And Amalek for what they did are to be utterly obliterated. So there were people this did not include. This was limited love. 
And believe you me, that uh, lawyer that came to Jesus and uh, asked about the commandments, and Jesus said, what, uh, what are they? He said, love your Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and whatever, and love your neighbors yourself. And Jesus said, well, go do that. And he said, well, who's my neighbor? He knew this. He knew that he was not required to love everybody as himself, but only his Israelite neighbor. And this guy was probably uh, not a, an Israelite that he saw lying there. So, so, that, so what you had here was limited revenge and limited love. Okay? And then we come to the ideal, which is unlimited love. And that's what you have in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus is showing him, look, uh, that's what uh, Israel has always understood, but that's going to be different now. You, you are to love any person who needs your help. <clears throat> now, this was anticipated in the Old Testament. We had it referred to last night, where Elisha was telling the secrets of the Syrian king to the Israelite army, and they were constantly escaping uh, the uh, plans of the Syrians. And so the king sends his whole army a huge host after Elisha and finds him at Dothan. And Dothan, uh, uh, at Dothan, uh, they see the city surrounded by this army, and you know what happened. Uh, the servant tells Elisha, look, uh, we're in trouble. And Elisha says, Lord, open his eyes, and he sees all these uh, chariots and horses of the Lord on the hills around. And, uh, and then <clears throat> the Syrian army comes down, and uh, Elisha says, Lord, close their eyes. Open the eyes of my servant, but close theirs. And so they become blind. And then he says, I'll lead you to the man you're looking for. So he leads them into the city of Samaria. They close the gates. And you have to, you have to understand what's going on here. Syria had caused no end of trouble to Israel for years. And here, it was their main enemy. It was like, <laughs> what's our main enemy today? China, Russia, <laughs> uh, and here they're all in the city, and the gates are closed, and here's the chance to completely annihilate this enemy. And so the king of Israel says to Elisha, shall I smite? And Elisha said, no. You don't kill a captive that you've taken, and these people are captives. Feed these people and send them home. And the Bible says, when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away. And they went to their master. And I think the next part is very interesting. So the bands of Samaria came no more into the land of Israel. There's your ideal resistance. <laughs> it's, it solved the problem. Okay? You might be surprised at how many verses in the Old Testament anticipate this. Say not thou, I will recompense evil. But wait thou in the Lord and he will save thee. That's from Proverbs. Proverbs 20, verse 22. Here's another one. Say not, I will do so to him as he hath done to me. I will render to every man according to his work. Proverbs 24, 29. Don't say that. I'm going to do to him what he did to me. The Lord will render to every man according to his work. It reminds me of the verse in the Bible. says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. This is in the Old Testament. What about this one? If thine enemy hungry, <clears throat> hunger, give him bread to eat. If he thirst, give him water to drink. For thou shalt heap coals of fire upon his head. Well, we're thinking Romans chapter 
14, I think. I forget now which, either 12 or 14, the last verse in the chapter, heaping coals of fire. Well, this is from, that's simply a quote from Proverbs 25, 21. So we have this anticipated in the Old Testament. People often ask me about the Old Testament, all the awful stuff that happened in the Old Testament. And I say, well, if you read the Old Testament carefully, God was bringing people out of raw heathenism where there was unlimited revenge, where there was unlimited slavery, where there was unlimited polygamy, where there was unlimited everything that was evil. And he knew he couldn't just have men jump the whole way to Jesus or to that standard. And so he was moving them incrementally and allowing things that he really didn't like. It's very clear that God did not like divorce and remarriage. Jesus said from the beginning it was not so. And so that clues me that there were things that God was allowing, things that were happening in the Old Testament that was not to his liking, but he, was, he humbled himself and came down to where man was and began to work with man. He knew he was putting his reputation on the line. People were going to accuse him forever for slavery and war and polygamy and all this stuff they accuse God of. And I hear it on the phone every day. God is just an awful God I wouldn't want to have. If, if he does exist, I want to have nothing to do with him because of the awful stuff he's done. I hear that every day. And I said, well, you have to understand how awful man was. And without taking away God, man's free will... He had to find a way to work this thing toward the ideal. Uh, <clears throat> somebody has said, this is God's universe. He does things in his way. A lot of people think he should have a different way of doing it, but they don't have a universe. <laughs> uh, and so that's how I look at this, that you see these glimmerings. You see that what God really wanted. You see this ideal standard he was working man toward, but he was working with, you know, a lot of people, I'm off my subject a little bit, but you need to know this. A lot of people say, do you believe God is all powerful? Yep. Do you believe he's all loving? Yep. Well, if he's allowing all this stuff to happen in our world, he either can't stop it or he doesn't care. And I said, well, you have to understand God is all powerful, but he cannot do everything that you think he should do. What? He can't lie. He can't break his promises. He can't take back our free will. He's not an Indian giver. He won't do that. He's working within certain parameters. Now I add one to it. He's not going to upset the natural order. He's committed to the natural order he has established. If God did every miracle that you think he should do, and everybody in the world think he should intervene here and he should intervene there, he'd upset the whole creation. There'd be no science. There'd be no predictability. There'd be nothing. The whole natural order would be turned topsy-turvy, and he's not going to do that. He's committed to the natural order and letting things play themselves out according to that natural order. So you have to understand God is working within certain parameters, They're parameters that he himself has established. They have to do with his character and the things that he has promised. But they are parameters. I sometimes say to them, it'd be interesting to see if God gave you the whole thing and gave you the power to deal with it, how you'd ever clean up this horrible mess we have in our world and do it absolutely just. Well, then they usually back down and they say, well, I guess you have a point. Uh, So, (laughs) I'm trying to explain to you, we have these glimmerings in the Old Testament that tell us what God really wanted, and he finally got in Christ. But in the meantime, it was messy, very messy, all right? But it was there. That's the point I'm trying to make. Anticipated. It was there in the Old Testament, clearly in the Old Testament, stated clearly in the Old Testament, demonstrated beautifully in cases in the Old Testament. So now we come to Jesus 
and we have the ideal asserted. Now, our King James Version says, resist not evil, but if you look at the other translations, I think they have it right from what I can study. It says, resist not an evil man. And I think it's unfortunate that that did not get in this translation because that adds to this idea that non-resistance is just doing nothing. No, you're not to resist an evil man. In the verses that follow, which we're not going to discuss, he tells you how to treat an evil man. You're to love him. You're to pray for him. You're to do good to him. You're to treat him with love. But you are to resist the evil. Okay? Now, this was a change from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, Elijah called down fire from heaven to destroy the messengers from King Ahaziah. And they were destroyed by fire from heaven. When the disciples and Jesus were walking through Samaria, and there's some villages that would not accept him, they said, Master, shall we call down fire from heaven? And they were very much aware, I'm sure, of that history. And Jesus said, No. You know not what manner of spirit you're of. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. So there's a clear statement that Jesus is changing the practice from the Old Testament to God's ideal. Okay? So, let's talk a little bit about this. Here's where many, many Christians take the exit ramp. And they want to find a way around this very, very difficult teaching. All right? So, they, uh, they talk about the uh, two swords that uh, Jesus said, does anybody have swords here? And they said, yeah, there are two swords. And Jesus says, it's enough. Well, in the first place, how are you going to fight a whole legion of the Roman army with two swords? Now, we did have a brother in our congregation who said, well, Jesus knew how to multiply uh, bread and fishes. It could be... (laughs) They thought if they had two swords, Jesus would know how to make many swords out of the two. But anyway, you can think that if you want to. We do know how one of those swords got used. Peter lopped off an ear. He was a fisherman after all. He tried to get the head, but he only got the ear. And then Jesus gave the most powerful verse on this subject right there. He said, Peter... Put your sword in its sheath. All they that take the sword shall perish by the sword. That's the most powerful statement in the New Testament on this subject. And Tertullian said, when God, when Jesus sheathed the sword of Peter, he sheathed the sword of every Christian. So I think those two swords were for this object lesson. I think that's my personal understanding. Well, then they'll say Cornelius. Well, he, this centurion brought his slave, and Jesus healed the slave, and they went back home, and Jesus didn't say anything to Cornelius about getting out of the army. Well, he also didn't say anything to Cornelius about keeping slaves. So I guess we can argue from silence that slavery is okay, too. It's pretty risky when you start arguing from silence, okay? Uh, and believe you me, during the era of slavery here in our country, they used that verse that way, that Jesus had not told him to get rid of slaves. So I guess it's okay to have slaves. So if you're going to say that Jesus didn't tell him to leave the army, then you also have to condone slavery and a whole lot of other things in the New Testament that you can read between the lines. So we don't, we don't go down that road. Well, then we go to Romans 13. Let's turn to it. Romans 13. <clears throat> 
Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resists the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For the rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is a minister of God to thee for, for good. Do you notice the pronouns here? It talks about he and you. Him and you. Him and you. It's talking about two different... It's, these aren't in the same category. And by the way, who was the emperor? He was Nero. Was he God's minister? In the sense that God uses the wrath of men to praise him. God is using every move that happens in this world to further his purpose. Uh, in the Old Testament, Nebuchadnezzar was called his servant. And then after Nebuchadnezzar had done what God wanted him to do uh, in carrying the children of Israel into captivity, then he was conquered by the uh, Persians. So, yeah, servant simply means he's doing an errand for God. It doesn't mean that he's in good standing with God or that he's going to have peace with God or things are going to turn out well between him and God. It doesn't say that at all. In fact, it says Cyrus was God's servant. Well, Cyrus sent the children of Israel back to their land. I mean, that's why he was there. But that doesn't mean that he was one of God's people in the sense that uh, Israel was. And so you go down through here and then you see the various usages of these pronouns, he and you, he and you, he and you. It's talking about that group and this group. And then it says something interesting in verse 5. It says, wherefore ye must needs be subject not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. Oh, so in order to function the way God wants us to function, we have to obey our conscience. Well, what does war do to the conscience? That's what I want to talk to you a little bit about. If we're to keep this sensitive conscience so we can always respond the way we should, then we're going to have to take great care that that conscience is sensitive in the way it should be. Well, <clears throat> I live near the Gettysburg battlefield. I've been there many times, taken the tours, and I could, I could give you the tour of the battlefield pretty well. The potential for killing in that battle, the potential, counting all the people that were there and how many guns and whatever, was 500 to 1,000 per minute. The actual rate was one to two per minute. Why? Because many people in that war could load their rifle and they could pick it up and aim it at a standing soldier and couldn't pull the trigger. I think there's built into every conscience a strong revulsion against killing a fellow human until that conscience is defiled. The Bible says there's a light that lights every man that comes into the world. If nobody had ever taught you, you would know it's wrong to kill, it's wrong to lie, it's wrong to steal. You would have a basic moral understanding. And God is saying, don't let that become defiled. That's warn- We have that warning a number of times in Scripture. And the thing that will defile that conscience the quickest is war. All kinds of horrible things happen in war to desensitize people's conscience. Well, let me continue. They retrieved 27,000 muskets after the battle. 90% of them were still loaded. Some of them had multiple charges, And one actually had 23 charges. So here's a man who stands, who keeps loading his gun, looking like he's participating in the war. So he loads it once, and and then he loads it twice. 
He never picks up that gun and fires it. 90% of the muskets still had a charge in them. Most could not pull the trigger. Eyewitnesses of the battle say many of them pulled the trigger, but they deliberately shot over the heads of the other side. So in World War II, they finally got that up to 15 to 20%. See, we still have very low figures as to people who can actually do it. In the Korean War, they got it up to 55%. In the Vietnam War, they got it just a little over 90% of the people who participated in that war could actually do it. But how did they get that to happen? They did it by brutalization, classical conditioning, operant conditioning, and role modeling. Those who go through boot camp will tell you there's tremendous physical and emotional abuse and desensitization and depersonalization to get this to happen. Dean Taylor will tell you they stood for hours shouting, kill, kill with cold blue steel, kill, kill. a whole group of people shouting this. What makes the grass green? What makes the grass green? Blood makes the grass green. Blood makes the grass green until people are very angry and just. And he says, you're supposed to obey for conscience sake and you're to participate in this kind of carrying on. Violence corrupts. And in World War II, we learned that the hard way. Both the United States, President Roosevelt, and the United Kingdom, Churchill, tremendously criticized the Germans when they began to bomb cities with civilians. They said, this is, this is not permissible in war. We don't attack civilians. Before this, war basically was between men who were fighting each other. Sometimes they got into towns and raped and did things they shouldn't have done. War is always horrible, always has been. But they basically didn't deliberately destroy cities. Until the Germans had done enough of that and looked like they were going to win. And so in 1942, the United Kingdom first started what they called obliteration bombing of civilian cities. In 1943, the U.S. joined them in doing that. So here they are breaking their own moral moral standards for war. And the worst thing that happened was the firestorm that they created at Dresden. How many of you know what I mean by a firestorm? A firestorm is when you bomb a city so much that a fire is created and the fire becomes so huge that the winds to support that fire sweep in at hurricane force and sweep everything into the middle of that inferno. It happened by accident with Dresden. And then the United States knew what a firestorm was. So then they did it deliberately. War corrupts. Here you have two nations that have pretty much lost their moral conscience in relation to war. And then, of course, at the end of the war, we have the bombing of two cities with the only atomic bombs that were ever used. Which, by the way, those, that Enola Gray, when it took off to do those bombing uh, uh, acts, that airplane was blessed by a Protestant chaplain and a Roman Catholic chaplain. And the target in Nagasaki, because they were afraid it might be cloudy, so they wanted a large target, so they targeted the large cathedral in the city. 
where probably the most Christians lived. And what had taken the Japanese government hundreds of years, they wanted to obliterate Christianity. The United States did in about seven minutes. This is war. War corrupts. Violence corrupts. But Jesus demonstrated a better way. I want you to turn to Isaiah 53. I only want, I want only to read the last part of the chapter. You know what happened here. It pictures Jesus' death. And then it says in verse 12, Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Where does spoil come from? It comes from a war. The winners take the spoil. So here was a battle that was won, And spoil was acquired by the person who was supposed to do the conquering dying. He wasn't killing anybody. He was dying. And he won the battle. Somebody's called this reverse fighting, where the person who's trying to deal with the problem dies instead of killing other people. That's the better way that Jesus taught. The success of this is based on the power of the resurrection, We are serving a different commander with different rules of engagement, with different goals of of conflict, and with a different accomplishment of those goals. It's It's a battle fought entirely in the reverse of the way battles are normally fought. But we are in a battle. Endure hardness as a good soldier. That's why I don't like the word non-resistance. We are in a battle. For we walk not after the flesh. Though we walk after the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare, see, it is a warfare, are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imagination and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity, that's another war term, every thought to the obedience of Christ. So we are in a battle. But we're going to fight it in a way that the enemy has no way to counter or they, they're baffled by it. They're not expecting it. So the first one we have, we're going to talk now about the ideal applied, verses 39b to 42. We have evil in four areas, and we're told how to deal with it. The first one is personal, interpersonal relationships. So somebody comes up and smacks you on the right cheek. Well, now, wait a minute. If I'm going to smack you on the right cheek, your right cheek is on this side, not this side. I can't go like this. I'm going to go like this. It's a back slap. It's not so much the injury as the insult. Somebody just insults you with the back of his hand. Now, you're not supposed to say to him, slap me on the other cheek. You're supposed to turn the other cheek. And then he has a decision to make. And he's not used to that kind of a battle. You've caught him totally off guard. He was expecting you to fight back. And you're saying, here you go. If you want to do more, look, Jesse Lee, okay? And this is, this is offensive warfare. You have taken the initiative, okay? It forces him to go further than he was planning to go. It's forcing him to th- be totally unfamiliar with the territory you've put him on. He doesn't know what the rules of engagement to this battle are. He doesn't know what another slap is going to do to a person like you. Somebody has said inside of every person are two persons. 
The one is a selfish person. And you're responding with, with force only stirs up that hatred and selfishness. But also inside every person is a generous person. If you live around that person occasionally, he can be as nice and generous as can. That, that person's in there too. And if you respond in love, it appeals to that generous person and is a rebuke to that selfish person. And this is powerful. This is powerful. He tries to break your head. You end up breaking his heart. You rest the offensive out of his hand. You're now in charge. Turn the other cheek. You're choosing the battlefield. You're choosing the weapons. You're compa- compelling him to stand on unfamiliar ground and face weapons he has no idea how to face. It's Pastor Peter in the Emmental, which is where the, our Anabaptist fathers basically lived there at Sumaswald. Uh, if you ever get to Switzerland, by all means, everybody goes to Zurich. But go to Swinnesvall. That's where our Anabaptist forefathers lived. And they actually, in, in Zurich, they don't even know Anabaptists ever existed. But in Swinnesvall, they do. The town actually has a walking Anabaptist tour. Well, in the 1600s, they were no longer executing people. But they were giving our people a horribly rough time. And there was a pastor in that, village, in that town uh, by the name of Peter. And one night, he and his wife got awake. You read this in Coals of Fire, probably. They got awake in the middle of the night, and they heard footsteps on the roof. They were taking off the thatch. And Peter says to his wife, look, we have workers on the roof. They're going to be hungry. We're going to get up and get breakfast. So they get up and got breakfast for those hardworking men on the roof. And uh, then they went out and said, hey, you men have been working. You've done a good job there, by the way. Uh, And you're hard at work, and I'm sure you're hungry. Come in for breakfast. Well, you know, they didn't want to do that. But Peter insisted, so finally they sheepishly filed, got down off the roof, came in, silently ate their breakfast without saying anything, and silently got up and went back and put the thatch on the roof. Now, it won't always turn out that way. It won't always turn out that way, but I will say this. If that doesn't conquer them at the place where they need to be conquered, nothing else will. You have just given the most powerful offensive that anybody can give. All right? So that's, that's personal. Somebody wrongs you, you immediately take control of the situation, you immediately take the offensive and begin to use weapons they are not familiar with. And they have to make choices they weren't expecting to make. Number two is jurisprudence. It talks about somebody suing you. We're talking now about law. We're talking about a courtroom situation. And he says if they take away your cloak... And in the context of Israel, you were not permitted to do that. You could take the cloak for a day till they finally came with their payment. You could take it for collateral. Uh, but if they didn't bring the payment by evening, you had to give the cloak back because it says that's the man's covering. That's his, he needs that for the night. You cannot take away the man's uh, uh, warmth for the night. You have to give the cloak back. But Jesus said, if somebody sues you and takes away your cloak, you're to say, you can have my Coat also. Here again. (laughs) You're appealing to something. This man, you've taken the offensive. You're using a weapon he doesn't know how to counter. All right? This is the moral equivalent of war. This is a real fight against something that is very wrong. Okay? 
Let's go to politics. These are when the government makes laws that oppress. A law that says if a Roman soldier says you have to, if he, he can tell you to carry your, the, uh, his burden for a mile, but the law says, then he has to give it back to you. But when he says, carry my pack for a mile, you say, oh, I'll carry it for two miles. By the way, where does that second mile begin? Anybody ever figure that out? Do you carry it the first mile? And then you look up smiling and say, I'll carry it another mile. (laughs) No. I think the second mile begins at the beginning. And when he says to you, you have to carry my pack for a mile, you say, oh, great, I'll carry it for two miles. What's he going to do with that? You see, again, you've taken the offensive. You've put him on a battlefield. He has no idea what the rules of engagement are. He has decisions to make, and he has that selfish man and that generous man in there uh, trying to figure out how to respond to this. And the generous man seems to sort of get the upper hand. Okay? This is active, ideal resistance of love. We conquer not by the quality of muscle, but by the quality of spirit. Well, the next one is in the area of business. Somebody asks you for something, he says, don't turn him away. Give him something. Give give to him that asks you. Now, I'm going to do the Mennonite thing. I'm going to really slice this here. It doesn't say give him what he asks. (laughs) But give him something. Peter said, I don't have any gold or silver, but I'm going to give you something. Give him something. Okay? Again, it's the plus that tips the scale. It doesn't say what you have to give him, give him what he needs. Clarence Fretz was the principal of the school where I first taught. And he had, what's this clock say? He had been a missionary to Luxembourg, and uh, he had come home for furlough, and he was on his way back to Luxembourg, and on the ship was a Presbyterian missionary headed for Africa, And in their conversation, he discovered that they were non-resistant, he and his wife. And he said, well, were you taught non-resistance? He said, no. He said, well, how did you come to this? He said, well, he said, the last time I was returning from my furlough, I opened my Bible for devotions in the morning, and I landed on this verse that said, give to him that asks of thee, and of him that would borrow thee, turn thou not away. I thought, well, that's, a ridic- that's an interesting statement. If I did that in Africa, they would rob me blind. And so he said, the next morning, I tried to meditate on something else. But he said, that verse just fastened itself like a cocklebird to my mind. And I could not get it out of my mind. The whole way across the Atlantic, this verse was there. Give to him that asketh of thee, and of him that would borrow thee, turn thou not away. So he said, I said to my wife, you know what? I wonder what would happen if we actually did this. And so they got to Africa. And somebody came and said, I would like to borrow your dishes. Sure. And then he told somebody else, and they came and they said, we'd like to borrow your chair, your chairs. Sure. Oh, and then everybody knew it. Table, everything, beds, whatever. And finally said, we had nothing left. We were sitting on the dirt floor of our little hut. And we said, now what do we do? He said, meanwhile, down at the village, they were laughing how stupid this missionary was. And everybody was bragging about how the, what advantage they had taken of him. And you know how that goes. It, they did that for a while, a week or two maybe. And then 
that got sort of old. And finally, somebody had a lucid moment, and they said, you know what? We're the cowards. It doesn't take anything at all for people to do what we did. But for him to do what he did, huh, that's heroism. There's a true man. I'm going to take my chair back. Yeah, I think I better take my dishes back. Yeah, I'll take the bed back. He said, I don't know if, any, if everything came back or not. But he said, I do know this. They said, look, when you were here the first time, you talked about God who gave his only. He gave everything. We did not understand that kind of response. Now we do. And he said, for the first time, we began to have success with our mission. This is, this is ideal resistance. Well, then to finish that story, he said, uh, we decided that if the Bible says something, we should quit trying to create theologies and reasons. We should do what it says and then learn the reality of what God had in mind. And so he said, we applied that not only now to finances, we applied it to non-resistance, which, of course, they had practiced in the process. This is the righteousness that exceeds. It's the righteousness that exceeds. It results in a joy that exceeds. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. It results in a love that exceeds, which we see in 46 and 47. We don't just love our friends, we love our enemies. So this is a righteousness that just overflows and goes far beyond what anybody expected. But is it practical? That's the question people ask me. Is this practical? Does it actually work? Well, I told you the other day that for 200 years... I, I, I have people often go back to history. See, I'm a great believer in what I call historic Christianity. If somebody comes up with something that nobody in all of church history ever heard of, you can mark it down without investigating it any further. That is error. And so when somebody says something, I say to myself, well, let's go back and look at church history. What about the covering? Oh, until about 1800, all women wore it. That's historic Christianity. And so what does history tell us about this? It tells us that for 200 years, the church practiced this. There's not evidence that any soldier, fighting soldier, now you could not get out of the Roman army without being executed. So the church allowed people to remain in the Roman army because many of them never saw any combat. They built bridges, they built roads and so on. And as long as they were doing that, they could be members of the church. But you could be in the Roman army, as, and, and, and they'll tell you, oh, there were Christians in the Roman Well, but go study. What did they do? The church said, you can stay in the Roman army till you have to swear an oath, or you have to fight, and then you must leave, and you must die. And so for 200 years, that was the church's standard. <clears throat> but what happened within those 200 years? We have the Pax Romana. I don't know what you study in history, but the Pax Romana was 200 years where the world was basically at peace. There were only a few minor skirmishes here and there, but there was no major war in those whole 200 years. And if you read the history books that I read growing up, it said because the Roman army was so merciless, they crucified people and did horrible things. People were scared to death. But that's not what the Christians said. The Christians said the reason for this world peace is because the Prince of Peace has come. He has established a kingdom of peace. And that kingdom's willingness to sacrifice and pray keeps the whole world from war. 
That's what the early Christians believed. And the interesting thing is that Pax Romana ended about the same time that the church permitted fighting soldiers to come into the church and the whole thing became compromised. Now you can say that's just a coincidence. You can say that if you want to, but I think that's a very interesting coincidence that we have 200 years of peace right after Christ came, died, resurrected, and the church was formed. 200 years of peace, and then the church finally, we had the record of the first fighting soldier joining the church in about A.D. 174, and then a compromise went through the next century, and then by 313, Constantine could baptize his army into the church. And now we have a major problem. What are we going to do with these verses? Well, then you set very clever theologians to work. And they come up with a just war theory with very nice cherry-picked verses and ideas, you know, reason and logic together. You see why I'm suspicious of systematic theology? Uh, That, in my mind, that's what this systematic theology does. It, It... Uh, Kierkegaard says Christian scholarship is the great invention of the church to keep us from obeying Jesus. (laughs) So anyway, be that as it may. Well, let me read what the first Christians said. Our prayers defeat all demons. This is Origen speaking. Our prayers defeat all demons demons who stir up war. Those demons also lead persons to violate their oaths and disturb the peace. He's replying to this. This whole idea of why the world is at peace. Accordingly, in this way, we are much more helpful to kings than those who go into the fields to fight for them. And we do take our part in public affairs when we join self-denying exercises, that's those ministries that they had, with our righteous prayers and meditations, which teach us to despise pleasures and not to be led away by them. So none fight better for the king than we do. Indeed, we do not fight under him, even if he demands it. Yet we fight on his behalf, forming a special army, an army of godliness, by offering our prayers to God. So Christians are benefactors to their country more than others. That's what the Christians believed who were practicing this. All right? But we're in a conflict, and there will be casualties, and some people will die. Okay? But the nuclear weapon of the Christian faith is that Christians are not afraid to die. They terrify their enemies who are putting them to death. Romans chapter 8 says nothing shall separate us from the love of God, including death. This is, Dean Taylor calls this the nuclear bomb of Christianity. That Christians face death with positive attitudes and cheer. Okay? The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And now I'm going to read you a little story. I tried to verify this story. I wish I could prove to you that it actually happened, and it may have happened. A legend is something that may have happened, but we can't absolutely prove it. So this is sort of a legendary story given by Clarence Jordan in his little book on the Sermon on the Mount. But it's written as if it's a piece of history, and it may have happened. An illustration of this is... Of this truth works out, how this truth works out is revealed in a story related by an old colonel in the Austrian army. I was commanded, the old colonel began, to march against a little town in the Tyrol and to lay siege to it, for we had been meeting stubborn resistance in that part of the country, but we felt sure that we should win because of all the advantages which were on our side. My confidence, however, was shaken by a remark from a prisoner we had taken. You will never take that town, he said. They have an invincible leader. 
What does the fellow mean? I inquired of one of my staff. And who is this leader of whom he speaks? Nobody seemed to able to answer my question. So in case there should be some truth in the report, I doubled my preparations. As we descended through the pass in the Alps, I saw with surprise that the cattle were still grazing in the valley and that women and children, yes, even men, were working in the fields. Either they're not expecting us or this is a trap to catch us, I thought to myself. As we drew nearer to the town, we passed people on the road. They smiled and greeted us with a friendly word and then went on their way. Finally, we reached the town and clattered up the cobbled paved streets, colors flying, horns sounding a challenge, arms in readiness. Women came to the windows or doorways with their little babies in their arms. Some of them looked startled and held their babies closer, then quietly went on with their housework tasks without panic or confusion. It was impossible to keep strict discipline, and I began to feel rather foolish. My soldiers answered the questions of the children, and I saw one old warrior throw a kiss to a little golden-haired tot on a doorstep, just the size of my Lisa, he muttered. Still no sign of ambush. We rode straight to the open square which faced the town hall. Here, if anywhere, resistance surely was to be expected. Just as I reached the town hall and my guard was drawn up to attention, an old white-haired man who, by his insignia, I surmised to be the mayor, stepped forth, followed by ten men in simple costume. They were all dignified and unabashed by the armed force before them, the most terrible soldiers of the great and mighty army of Austria. He walked down the steps straight to my horse's side and with a hand extended cried, Welcome, brother. One of my aides made a gesture as if to strike him down with his sword, but I saw by the face of the old mare that this was not a trick. Where are your soldiers, I demanded. Soldiers? Why, we don't have any, he replied with wonderment as though I had asked, where are your giants or where are your dwarfs? But we have come to take this town. Well, no one will stop you. Are there none here to fight? At this question, the old man's face lit up with a rare smile that I will always remember. Often afterward, when engaged in bloody warfare, I would suddenly see that man's smile, and somehow I came to hate my business. His words were simple. No, there is no one here to fight. We have chosen Christ for our leader, and he taught men another way. There seemed to be nothing left for us to do but to leave the town unmolested. It was impossible to take it. If I had ordered my soldiers to fire on those smiling men, women, and children, they would not have obeyed me. Even military discipline has its limits. Could I command the grisly soldier to shoot down the child who reminded him of his Lisa? I reported to headquarters that the town had offered unassailable resistance. The ideal resistance. Although this admission injured my military reputation, but I was right. We had literally been conquered by these simple folk who followed implicitly the leadership of Jesus Christ. This is the ideal resistance that we're talking about. Now, I would like to talk a little bit about voting and political action. That's a big subject, should Christians vote. Well, we have some things to help us understand what Christians should do. For instance, we have in the New Testament era the institution of slavery. That was a social ill, evil, 
like abortion or any other thing that uh, Christians say they should do something about. But we have no indication whatsoever that there was ever any sit-down strikes or peaceful resistance uh, or, uh, what do you call it, civil disobedience. No. In fact, the command was, if you're a slave, be a better slave. And if you're a slave owner, be a better slave owner. But the fact of the matter is, Jesus' teaching, love your neighbor as yourself, finally brought an end to slavery by dealing with the heart, not by trying to bring some kind of pressure externally on people. So <clears throat> that's a good indication of how God wants us to deal with things. And when people ask me about this, they, they always go to slavery in the Old Testament, and the New Testament doesn't forbid it, why not? And I say, well, no, wait a minute. What did, what did uh, Paul tell the masters? Give to your slaves that which is just and equal. What kind of slavery would that be? And he told Philemon when he returned to Onesimus, he said, now when he returns, don't treat him as a slave. Treat him as a brother and treat him like you would treat me. I said, that's what brought an end to slavery, an appeal to the hearts of men and an example of the way of Christ and slavery was brought to an end. We are to overcome evil with good. Our efforts to overcome evil with political power is not the way of Christ for various reasons. I will give you a few of them. It ultimately relies on carnal force. If you help to elect a man in that kingdom, we, we represent another kingdom, and let me tell you what I believe that kingdom is. That kingdom, as far as I'm concerned, is the original ideal that God had for man. Before sin came into the world, before there was a need for any force, before there was any evil, we are to represent that ideal society that God originally intended. My clue to that is when Jesus said it wasn't so from the beginning. And so we're here to represent the ideal society. It won't be perfect because we still are living in the flesh. We still are being tempted. We still have the world, the devil, and all of that, and we fail sometimes. But it will be credible because the principle of putting self on the cross and repenting when we fail will bring us constantly back to the ideal. And we will give a credible picture of this, even though it's not perfect, a credible picture of what the whole world would look like if everybody obeyed Jesus or if man had never sinned. That's, to me, that's what the kingdom of God is all about. Communities that are little colonies of heaven. And we're to go all over the world and plant these colonies so people can look in and see the lost ideals for men and see the hope that they can be restored through Christ and want to join. That's my concept of what the kingdom of heaven is all about. But if you vote for someone in that other kingdom, and, and to be part of that kingdom, you have to completely come out of that kingdom because that kingdom uses force. And Christians are not to use force. So we have to completely withdraw from the, the coercive activities of that kingdom, including political action, because it ultimately relies on force. If you voted for the president, you voted for the commander-in-chief of the American army. And you say, well, shouldn't we have voted for a man like Winston Churchill? He was a wonderful leader, did a lot of good. Well, he helped his country fight the Second World War. Not only that, but Winston Churchill, I read just recently, was opposed to the independence of India. So he was fighting against people like Gandhi and actually had passed some laws to bring starvation to some of their political enemies in southern India. I went to a historian and asked if that was true. He said, yes, that's true. So you vote for Winston Churchill. You're voting for a man who finally takes action that causes the starvation of some people in a country that he's trying to subdue. So that kingdom ultimately resorts to force. It has to. That's what it's supposed to do to keep evil from running rampant. And you're participating in that. And as a Christian, I just showed you we cannot do that. We're to take a different way. Number two, 
it compromises the, the witness of kingdom Christians. It involves them with violence. And then you have crazy things like the pastor of the local church who pulls the lever on the electric chair and thinks he's doing God's will. I mean, that makes no sense, finally, even to the world. Number three, its effectiveness is limited and temporary. I lived during the 80s when Jerry Falwell and a Jewish leader and a Roman Catholic leader formed the moral majority. They managed to get Reagan elected. They managed to get the House and the Senate both under the Republicans, and they passed a whole bunch of moral legislations to try to straighten out this nation, and they thought they really were accomplishing things. And then Reagan went out of office, and Bush went out of office, and the next president came in, and with a couple strokes, pretty much undid everything they did. And then Cal Thomas wrote an editorial in Christianity Today and said we learned the hard, who was involved in the moral majority, he said we learned the hard way that the church accomplishes the most by just being the church. Amen. But the problem is the church is giving a compromised witness. You could be a member of the most conservative Bible-believing churches in this country, and you can be divorced and remarried. You can swear oaths. You can go to war and kill people. You can accumulate wealth. You can disobey everything Jesus said until Gallup did a poll back in the 80s to see if there was any real difference, measurable difference between the church and the world, and he only found about a 3% difference. That what was going on in here was pretty much the same as what was going on out there. This is not, then, a city set on a hill. I'm not pointing at you. I'm saying the church. This is not the kingdom of heaven. This is supposed to be a stark contrast toward all that is wrong there. Okay? Even if they had succeeded, moral majority, they really didn't change anything where it needed to be changed. In fact, I don't know if you've noticed, but the conservatives morally aren't any better than the liberals. The conservatives, if you watch their programs, they have just as much immodesty, just as many of those people are divorced and remarried, and they don't seem to understand that their economic and political policies will never succeed as long as we are morally rotten. Number four, it involves Christians with men of compromised characters. Number five, it results in Christians killing other Christians. I mean, can you imagine that? Here are Christians killing other Christians. In the Old Testament, that didn't happen. You had God's people, and you had the heathen that the, these people were supposed to deal with, and they weren't f- killing any Israelites. They were holy wars. These are not holy wars. Nobody can ever decide which side is just. Well, they say Hitler. What do you do with Hitler? Well... If the church had never compromised, Hitler's people were Lutherans, most of them. They were professing Christians. Hitler would have had no army. Am I making sense? He'd have never gotten into power. By the way, he was elected by a democratic election in which the Mennonites voted for him. And we're not non-resistant. There's not an example of one Mennonite that refused to cooperate with Hitler. Suppose, I'd like to think sometimes what would have happened. Suppose the gospel had been unadulterated and non-resistance and non-accumulation of wealth had been part of its message and part of its example. And suppose they had taken that to Russia a thousand years ago when Christianity went to Russia, it would have included non-resistance, I'm sorry, the ideal resistance and non-accumulation of wealth. There never would have been a Bolshevik revolution There wouldn't have been inequality in Russian society. There wouldn't have been anybody to fight. So people who say, well, what do you do about it? I say, well, try to imagine what the world might be like 
if the church had never compromised and had never gotten involved in violence, had never gotten involved in accumulated wealth. Those are two huge reasons why the world has so much war, the rich and the poor. And if the Christians had challenged that, and everywhere they went, they were creating equality and equity and and justice, and their whole society would have been permeated by these people who, who believe these ideals and demonstrate them. Just try to imagine what the world might have been like. To me, the compromise on this issue of non-resistance, or the ideal resistance, was the the most dastardly compromise that the devil ever accomplished with the church. Because once they uh, decided that Christians could go to kill, now you have Christians going to uh, Jerusalem to kill Muslims. You have the Crusades. You have the Inquisition where Christians are torturing and burning other Christians at the stake. You have Christians coming to North America saying that the people here are pagans. We need to kill all the, the uh, we need to obliterate these uh, native tribes in the name of Christ. You have the blacks enslaved, preached from the pulpits. You have the war to end that slavery where Christians killed each other on both sides by the tens of thousands. You have all of the conquest of Latin America under the sign of the cross, which were, was Christians. You have all the wars of Western Europe for hundreds of years that only ended about a a century and a half ago, between Christians. Did you ever read the 30-year war where the Catholics and the Protestants fought it out and fought and fought and fought and devastated all of Germany and much of uh, France and killed thousands of people, destroyed villages, pillaged and raped and did uh, horrible things, and after 30 years, nobody had won. And then they sat down and carved up Europe. This goes to the Catholics, this goes to the Protestants, The devil surely was smiling when Augustine was being clever with his theology. And also, getting involved in politics often has unexpected and even tragic consequences. I was not aware of this, but the churches fought against the election of Jefferson because Jefferson was an agnostic. And at that time, they wanted a Christian president. And their efforts to defeat him were so vehement and so ugly that they caused him to be elected. I lived in the 1960 election when we had John F. Kennedy, who was a Catholic, running against Nixon, who was a Protestant, and Mennonites flocked by the hundreds to vote for Kennedy, vote for Nixon because they could not believe that we could have a Catholic president. And then he won. And William McGrath wrote the rather satirical little tract, Did God Lose the Election? And then we come to 2012, and in order to defeat Obama, the Christians all got on the bandwagon with, uh, come on, tell me who, the Mormon. Romney. Romney. He was a Mormon. Where are these Mennonites that want a Christian in government? Now they're voting for a Mormon. I said, it often has unexpected consequences. The Quakers tried an experiment of Christians running the government of Pennsylvania. And that's an interesting thing. They succeeded for a while, but the Revolutionary War finally swept away all illusions of using political action to secure freedom. And then, of course, the worst example is Nazi Germany. And I have to close here. Nazi Germany. By the time Hitler took over, and by the way, he was elected with many votes by Mennonites. By that time, they had completely lost their ideal resistance. And they supported him. Now, you have to understand the situation. After World War I, 
the free nations of the world imposed sanctions on Germany so severe that it destroyed their economy. And Hitler came, now this is going to sound very much like the present. He came and revived the economy. The Mennonite farmers were prospering because of Hitler's policies. They also had a neighbor to the east, the communists who they feared. They were hearing about the awful stuff that Stalin did. They were scared to death. Hitler promised to protect them from... Does this sound familiar? And they all voted for him to a man. And it wasn't until after the war they found out what they had actually voted for. But it took them until 1995 to repent. Finally, in 1995, the German Mennonites made a statement of apology for their support of Hitler. And so, don't vote. You don't know who you're voting for. You don't know what kind of policies you're going to be supporting by that vote. We belong to a different kingdom. We show a better way. We have our witness by demonstrating truly. And, and by the way, it should give us a passion for the purity and obedience of our churches to demonstrate this shining city set on a hill that fully obeys Jesus as a group. Oh, I just want to see that so badly. But we see, you know, this person goes off with their self-expression, with their automobile or their dress or whatever all else, you know. That's what destroys it. That's what destroys it. Individualism. Self-expression. That was the genius of the plain lifestyle. It had its problems, and and you could uh, do things with that that weren't good. But it basically was an effort to curb self-expression. We've all decided how we're going to dress. Individualism. We we have a lot of things we do that we don't have individualism. And then when we opened this up and said, we're just going to teach the principles, and we'll let every person apply it by the power of the Holy Spirit... We open the door to self-expression. And like Peter Burkholder said, we are not as spiritual as we think we are. And I will add to that, we are more carnal than we think we are. Self is more powerful than what we realize. And so I'm just calling us. Ideal resistance, it is very powerful, but we have to consistently practice it. Shall we bow our heads for prayer? Father, we thank you so much that you've shown us a better way and that you're Grace and all of heaven's resources are there when we're practicing obedience to this particular command. Help us not to resist evil men. Help us to love them. Help us to bless them. Help us to pray for them. But help us to relate to them in a way that they find themselves fighting a defensive battle against weapons and methods that they don't understand, that the generous part of their nature begins to to, uh, ratify. Oh, God, bless us. Help us to understand that your ways are not our ways and to totally cooperate with what you've told us to do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.